Okay, it's Professor Kozlowski's story time. Once upon a time, many years ago, when I was but a young and naive undergraduate student, I had the privilege to actually spend some time with and ask, quest ask at least one question of Mary Carr, the uh, noted memoirist, writer of The Liars Club, um, and a very accomplished just uh, writer in general. Like, she's largely responsible for the sort of upswelling of the memoir craze in the in the 2000s. The Liars Club is largely hailed as sort of one of the major works in that movement. Um, and our campus invited her over for our yearly big fancy writers doodad where everybody like got to sit down and talk with her for a little while. Um, and I, being again young and naive, raised my hand and got my one question with Mary Carr. And I asked... Um, following up on something she had said earlier, uh, that, you know, like, the writer is supposed to be the best possible version of themselves in order to write appropriately about themselves, um, something along those lines, I don't remember exactly. I asked the question, but isn't it true that writers who have demons are often even more powerful as a consequence? Um... Like, what about Kafka? What about Dostoevsky? What about these writers who were kind of motivated by these things that obsessed them? Um, isn't darkness a potentially fertile source of literature? And she responded pretty violently, I should say, that no, that was not the case. That absolutely, without any question, a writer should strive to be the best version of themselves and that they cannot write well if they are not themselves a good person. In order to write good literature, a writer needs to be free of those demons, separated from those anxieties and obsessions, utterly above, in some sense, that evil dark streak. And that irked me. Like, when I was an undergrad, it irked me. It still irks me to this day a little bit. Like, I still have my copy of the Liars Club signed on my shelf. I, I have not gotten rid of it, but I have not made it through either. Um, what I want to talk about today is the artists themselves. That's what Maritain is talking about. That is what we are talking about today. Here in the Ethics of Literature, we finally reached the point where we're talking about the person and the personality of the actual artist with reference to their art and the way that we are to judge it. And this is gonna be rough. Like, it is possibly one of the most hot-button topics when it comes to the discussion of art. Um, literally just in telling that story, sort of recognizing that this was a conversation that I was, you know, thinking about and having, you know, literally like 15, 18 years ago at this point when I asked Mary Carr that question, when I was still thinking about this and wondering about this, I kind of think now that maybe that was not the right question to ask Mary Carr specifically. Um, it is well known that Mary Carr was in a, an abusive relationship with David Foster Wallace, and that David Foster Wallace is kind of the perfect example here in the 20th century, or late, or 21st century now, of the writer driven by his demons. Um, I kind of have to wonder if the reason why her, she, her answer was so vehement was because she had personally dealt with that. And here I was, naively unaware of this, you know, sort of behind-the-scenes artistic drama, just absolutely putting my foot in it and totally ruining her day. Um, hooray for being a, 
like idiot jackass undergraduate, these things happen, I suppose. Um, but at the same time, I feel like that question still stands. Maybe Mary Carr isn't up to answering it. Maybe David Foster Wallace isn't up to answering it. Maybe I'm not up to answering it. But we're going to take a shot at it today. The question on the table is, can a writer be bad, a bad person, and still write a great work, can still produce good literature in some sense? And on some level, the answer to this is pretty obvious. We study a whole lot of writers who are famously good at their work, famously moral in their presentation, and yet famously immoral in their personal lives. Um, Hemingway was a womanizer. Kafka was clearly driven by his demons. Poe suffered from a wide variety of problems. David Foster Wallace was a vicious abuser. Joss Whedon apparently abused women on set. You know, even today, like, this is literally the week that J.K. Rowling's Wizarding World Hogwarts Legacy video game has come out and the internet has been afire with discourse about whether or not buying this game in fact contributes to J.K. Rowling's turf agenda of anti-trans feminism. It's something we're frequently thinking about, something we're frequently talking about, and something that is very difficult to divorce from the subject of art, art and art criticism generally. We have a lot of conversations about this, probably more than most of the things we've already talked about in this ethics of literature discussion. As much as I am fascinated by questions of the ethical dimension of classism, like in Tolstoy, or whether or not an art can be subtracted or removed from its political context and consequences, as the Dadaists tried in our discussion of Gassette last week, as much as these are fascinating questions and I definitely want to talk about them, there's probably no question more immediately and obviously controversial than where does the morality of the author fall in our appreciation of the morality of his work, um, or her work for that matter. So that's the discussion on the table today. And on some level, this is not what Maritain is talking about. It's definitely relevant to what Maritain is talking about. It's definitely a component of what Maritain is talking about. But Maritain is examining this discussion more broadly and without that sort of political consequence. We are not talking in Maritain about whether we should be disqualifying works of art or rejecting them on the grounds of their artists being bad people, much as that is a really you know, like I said, hot-button issue in its own right. What Maritain is sort of talking about is the responsibility of the artist specifically to his work. When he says the responsibility of the artist, he is talking about the sort of divided responsibility of the artist between his society, his role as an ethical human being, and as a human being, an ethical agent in his society, but also the relationship of that artist to their work. What are the responsibilities that that artist has to the work that they are trying to produce? Um, and on some level, we've already talked about this. Like, if anything, this is something that has been sort of preoccupying a lot of these artists, even if they haven't talked about it explicitly. One of the advantages of, you know, looking at these works specifically by artists about art um, has been that we have 
sort of been able to see it from their perspectives, to recognize it from the perspective of the person creating the art. Tolstoy is not just criticizing bad art, but Tolstoy is also sort of aware and self-conscious of the effects that his morality has on his own art, even if we question whether he's right to judge his, his art so viciously in some cases. Um, here with Maritain, we actually have our first non-artist art writer, um, Maritain is a philosopher, died in the wool. Um, he, as far as I know, never put pen to paper on a novel and never attempted anything in the way of artistic exploration um, or aspiration. He is a philosopher, plain and simple. Um, and this is our first philosopher, plain and simple. At the same time, though, this book frustrates me. Like, there's a lot that I like about it, and there's a lot that, especially on this reading, this, this second reading after, you know, again, 16, 17 years away from this particular book, um, that I appreciate, that I've learned to recognize and, and sort of respect more than I did once upon a time. Um, I had never read Thomas Aquinas when I first read Jacques Maritain's The Responsibility of the Artist, and now I can appreciate Maritain's use of Aquinas as well as get mad about his use of Aquinas here. Um, but nonetheless, the part of the reason why I am so frustrated by this is a, a reason that is pretty obvious to anyone who does, in fact, do art or has artistic aspirations and encounters this work, namely that art is so far removed from Maritain. Um, he frequently holds the artist on this kind of pedestal, like they have this fundamentally different relationship to the universe, um, that they are in some sort of divinely touched or inspired being, um, that they, you know, don't necessarily have to play by the same rules that everybody else does. Um, he doesn't necessarily go that far in it. I remember that being a major part of my first reading, but not not so much here, perhaps because I've been, you know, inured to that perspective. But it is indicative of something that I do want to start this conversation talking about, namely the reverence of the artist. Um, this is something that Tolstoy was very conscious of, but very much rejecting. This is a trap that I think Maritain falls into a little bit here. Artists are humans. This is one of the basic assumptions that I have undertaken in, in this whole project, and it's something that I kind of want to reiterate here, just because it's suddenly very relevant. Um, as much as, you know, artists are especially sensitive to certain issues in the world, or, you know, the, their particular way of looking at the world makes them especially, like, expressive of that world, I don't think that there is necessarily some sort of specific difference between artists and not artists especially here in you know the 21st century one of the things that i have kind of always stressed in my ruminations about art and my writings about art is that there is at least nowadays very little difference between the artist and the non-artist um, we cannot divide the world neatly into artist and audience in anymore um, that doesn't exist in the 19th century, the artist really was put on a pedestal, and it's something that you will see frequently in a lot of, especially the Romantic writers, but also late 19th century thinkers sort of ruminating about art. You'll see frequently this kind of, like, excuse made for artists who behave badly or a recognition that artists are somehow better than the rest of us in some way. Here in the 21st century, what I want to stress is we are artists. Like, 
everyone who is listening to this right now is, unless you have somehow totally neglected this part of your life, you are an artist. Um, the difference between the, peop the person who watches the movie and the person who makes the movie can be literally a matter of, like, a couple of hours nowadays. The difference between the person who reads a short story and the person who writes a short story is even less. The internet has given us all a voice. It has absolutely reduced the difference between the artist and the audience. It has made us one and the same. The guy who, you know, bangs on YouTube about the newest Marvel movie is, at the end of the day, doing art. Maybe not the same kind of art, maybe not with the same level of dedication, maybe not with the same level of sophistication. But at the end of the day, when I said at the outset of this lecture series that I'm not going to be talking very much about the art versus not art distinction and the, you know, art is something that you have to aspire to and that, like, your movie is garbage, therefore it is not art distinction, is not something I'm interested in. But the natural corollary of that here in the 21st century is that we are all artists. Everyone who is criticizing art is an artist. Everyone who is doing art is an artist. Everyone who is just fiddling around on deviant art or, you know, writing fan fiction online. These are all artists. We are all playing this game together. Which, on the one hand, means that we definitely can't, you know, hold artists up on a pedestal and expect everyone to abide by this, like, ridiculously, you know nuanced or, or ridiculously highfalutin elitist distinction that Maritain seems to be holding here, but also that that's why it's so important to talk about the responsibility of art, the ethics underlying art. Like, the reason why I wanted to do this lecture series has as much to do with the fact that I think art is everywhere as the fact that I think that, that art is important. Um, there is a lot of garbage online, and we don't really have a system in place for understanding how to judge or grade or even shame artists who produce something bad or negative. At least part of this lecture series is dedicated to trying to fix that. Now, with that in mind, before we get really underway here, I want to sort of make an audible um, originally, when I was planning out this lecture series, my plan was to do it, like, strictly chronologically, in which case we would go from Gasset to Maritain, and from Maritain to Sartre, and from Sartre to Lewis. But having read Gasset and Maritain back-to-back, -back, I'm suddenly realizing that we've kind of, in my case, accidentally fallen into a recognition of the art in its three modes. Namely, the art as object as Gasset was talking about it, and as the Dadaists were sort of emphasizing that art should become something divorced from both its artist and from the world around it. But here with Maritain, we're now talking about the artist, him or herself, um, the artist as person, and what moral sort of baggage follows the person who makes the art, or the art that is made by the person. Um, and the logical next step in this discussion is to talk about the audience. The reader, the person looking at the painting or watching the movie, which is exactly what C.S. Lewis is doing in an experiment on criticism. Um, so here is my audible. We are going to be talking about Lewis as an experiment on criticism next week. We'll talk about that more in a little bit. Um, for now, I want to kind of stress we've wandered into this territory, this basic metaphysics of art, where art has a connection to, one, the object that is being presented as a work of art, 
two as a product of the artist, and three as something that is received and appreciated by a reader slash audience. This is kind of the way that art is always viewed and understood, so it makes sense that we would eventually get to talking about it in this framework. But I also want to stress this. All three components are stuff that we're going to be talking about, and all three moralities is something we're going to talk about. Um, as much as I respect the death of the author movement and this idea that you can totally abstract the work from the artist the way that the Dadaists kind of want it to be, that's not how we process art. That's, it's just not. Like, it, it's a fantasy that just does not happen in practice. And as much as I would encourage us to examine a work of art specifically based on what its own text says, or specifically in terms of, you know, how the reader responds to it, um, it is not that simple. All three of these things need to be talked about. Um, Death of the Author is a useful lens and a useful tool for, for talking about art, but again, it is one tool among many. Today we are talking about the artist, and the artist can't be dead for us to talk about them. Um, now, again, with that in mind, like, we've talked about this before. Tolkien especially brought this up. In Leaf by Niggle, we were basically looking at his own sort of reflection and rumination on what it means to be an artist and what the responsibility of the artist is and juggling these two responsibilities. Um, but as much as that is a major feature of what Tolkien is doing there, it is very much subsumed in this kind of more objective attitude where Tolkien sort of puts himself in the mind of God and does a little theology, even if he doesn't want to admit to doing it. Um, at the end of the day, he is less interested in, you know, what is the moral obligation of him as an artist to his artwork, or by contrast to the community around him, and he is at the end of the day saying, what does art look like to God? What is the moral value of art in God's universe? Um, and we are not too far away here. Again, we should stress, Maritain is another one of our Christian writers. We haven't gotten far away from them so far in the, this discussion, like Tolstoy and Tolkien and now Maritain, all art, all Christians. Um, and we're just going to follow it up with Lewis, who is admittedly the last of our nominal Christians here, but you know, yet another Christian. Um, and it probably is no coincidence that so many of our people thinking about the morality of art are also Christians who are concerned about the sanctity of their souls and very much aware of whether or not they are sinning at any given point. Um, but I do sort of want to mention that and draw attention to that and recognize that, yeah, so far the morality of artwork has been, at least in this discussion, largely the purview of religion as much as it is some kind of secular moral philosophy. Um, that doesn't mean that it's restricted to Christianity. Again, like for us to be talking about the merits of an individual artist or the, the baggage, the moral baggage that an artist brings to their work, that's going to get very secular very fast. Um, but nonetheless, we should recognize that Maritain is coming from a Christian perspective and pretty unabashedly Christian at that. Um, Maritain is pretty openly Catholic throughout this text. Um, he is clearly cribbing off of t uh, Thomas Aquinas a lot. I would argue that he is a neo-Thomist. I've had heard him described as one of the Christian existentialists, but I'm not entirely sure how truly accurate that is, because he seems to have considerably more beef with Christian existentialism than, than real 
truck with them. Um, the fact of the matter is, I don't know that much about Maritain. Um, I've got friends who are huge Maritain fans, and I am just not one of them. I definitely stumbled into him, um, and I have not read much else of his work, and honestly, reading The Responsibility of the Artist has not recommended uh, him too terribly much to me. Um, maybe because this is just a minor work, or maybe because I'm failing to appreciate the nuance of what he's trying to do here, I don't know. But I'm not sure I'm on board with his reading of Thomas, and I'm not sure I'm on board with his understanding of art, and let's talk about it. The first thing that Maritain kind of brings up and is very much exploring throughout the responsibility of the artist is this distinction between beauty and morality. Um, according to Maritain, and this sort of very basic rudimentary level, he says that the responsibility of the artist as artist is to serve beauty. Art serves beauty, in short. And this is a distinct thing from morality. Art can serve beauty and therefore be good art, even if it is in some way intrinsically immoral, according to Maritain. These are two separate metrics, two separate means of judging the work of art. We are in territory now, at least the way that Maritain is doing his artistic judgment, which, like Gasset, recognizes that an art, a work of art can be entirely divorced from its moral value. Um, a great work doesn't necessarily have to be moral in short. This is something that obviously Tolstoy would have hu had huge problems with. For Tolstoy, a work of art couldn't be good unless it was moral first. But Maritain comes from a very different school of thought, perhaps because he has been raised on Baudelaire and Mallarmé, and he does apologize for them a little bit here. Like... Quick side note in the, you know, long saga of what the heck do our various thinkers think of Mallarmé. Um, we should note that Tolstoy is hardcore against Mallarmé because he is apparently bourgeois nonsense, you know, perpetuated by rich artistic snobs with perverse tastes. We've got Gasset effectively apologizing for Mallarmé and saying that he was sort of like the canary in the coal mine. Uh signaling the beginning of this new movement where art was divorced from its subject matter and could stand dehumanized alone and entirely interested in its own effect and own sort of engineering. Here we have Maritain once again sort of pillorying Mallarmé. I don't know why everybody is so obsessed with this guy. But yeah, Maritain's take on Mallarmé seems to be he was interested in beauty and therefore a good artist, but ultimately he was interested in nothing and that, like, hurt his artistic creations. I have no idea how to read Mallarmé at this point. I am so confused. So many of these writers are just t in total disagreement about what this guy is actually doing. Um, we should probably note also that Maritain does take some pot shots at Wagner, too, since we spent a lot of time talking about Wagner with... Uh, with Tolstoy. Maritain seems to be pretty okay with Wagner, but he does suspect Wagner of possibly being too nationalistic and therefore being propaganda. He, he brings that up in the Art for the People chapter. Um, so, once again, like, I, I said that we should be familiar with a lot of these artists and a lot of these writers, because they were going to come up again. Surprise! Turns out Mallarmé and Wagner are just going to keep coming up over and over and over again. So if you have not taken the time to familiarize yourself with both of them, then, yeah, now would probably be a good time. I have to read more Mallarmé. Uh, what is even happening? 
Anyway, we have a distinction between beauty and morality. That is what Maritain sets up here. He is definitely a neo-Thomist, and he seems to be taking this cue from Thomas Aquinas. I admittedly did not track down the specific passage from Summa Theologica 2.2 in order to, you know, figure out exactly what Maritain was doing here, largely because the ostensive goal of this whole lecture series was to only talk about art criticism and morality and art in the 20th century or at least since Tolstoy so as much as this is probably relevant in this case I, I did neglect my Thomas on this one but we'll talk about that more um, what uh, Maritain is emphasizing here is that the artist is faced with a quandary as a as a consequence um, the fundamental divide that an artist has to wrestle with is that as an artist they have to serve beauty as a person, they have to serve morality, have to serve other people. And that this sort of division of priorities will necessarily lead to problems. And in Maritain's work, this seems to be pretty well or sort of like symbolized by the difference between André Gide on the one hand and Mauriac on the other. Um, specifically, Gide is apparently this very secular, very sort of avant-garde, very sort of pushing-the-boundaries French novelist. Um, his famous work is The Immoralists, which seems to sort of explain the whole thing. Um, and while I haven't read The Immoralists and I haven't read Gide, just as I haven't read Mauriac, what Maritain usually says quoting Gide very much emphasizes this kind of allegiance between the artist and the devil um, in some ways. Like, he quotes Gide pretty frequently, um, but it is very much emphasized by Gide that art needs to be utterly divorced from morality. Like, even here in chapter one, the very beginning of the book, Maritain opens with a Gide quote. Um, he asks, does it matter what one writes? What one writes is of no consequence. This was the motto some 20 years ago of those who advocated the so-called gratuitousness of art. To be able to think freely, André Gide said after Ernest Renan, one must be certain that one, one, what one writes will be of no consequence. And he went on to say, the artist is expected to appear after dinner. His function is not to provide food, but intoxication. And again, in a dialogue between himself and an imaginary allocutor, the interlocutor says, Are you interested in moral questions? Gide responds, What? The very stuff of our books? The interlocutor responds, But what is morality, according to you? And Gide replies, A branch of aesthetics. So here we have Gide, who is clearly in opposition to the idea of art being subservient to morality. He is absolutely an opponent of Tolstoy. He is absolutely an opponent of, arguably, Tolkien. Any of the writers that we've encountered thus far who have argued that art should be subject to morality, that you cannot have good art without it being moral, they are very much in opposition to what Gide is saying. Now, the trick here is that Maritain, as much as he seems to be pushing back against Gide, also seems to accept the truth of what Gide says here. This is complicated and tricky, so I kind of want to, you know, elaborate on this a bit. Maritain definitely have, has problems with Gide, and Maritain definitely seems to think that just praising immorality willy-nilly is not good art. Um, there is a problem here. 
But Maritain is challenged by Gide and seems to think that Gide is, by all reckoning, a great artist in his own right. What Maritain is questioning is Gide's conclusions, not Gide's stature. And the business that Maritain seems to be doing over the course of his novel is questioning not so much, you know, is this a good artist or is this a bad artist? Is, is this good art or is this bad art? That's not what he's doing. Unlike Tolstoy, he's not, you know reevaluating the entire literary canon with an eye towards like systematically exterminating all the bad writers in it like Plato trying to get Homer out of his perfect republic instead Maritas seems to seems to take the canon as a given he asserts basically that okay yeah there are a lot of artists who seem to maybe push the boundaries and Gide is definitely one of them how do we square their existence as great artists, something that we do not question, with the fact that the artist has to be a responsible human being. How do we make those two things fit together? Now, we might here in the 21st century say, Begit is a crappy artist and he's not worth paying attention to, and honestly, I'm open to that possibility. Challenging the canon is not something I am afraid to do here in this series or in my discussions in general. Especially because as we get later on in our discussion of the ethics of literature, you're going to find a lot of people pushing back on the canon, and I think it's pretty broadly the case that we can push back on the canon here in the 21st century now that we are questioning the presence in the canon of writers like, you know, Joseph Conrad or other, you know, very racist writers of that nature, you know, as we are in fact seriously reevaluating the morality of many of the artists and many of the artworks in the canon, yeah, you better believe that challenging the canon is becoming more and more mainstream, even among otherwise servants of the canon, like English professors, philosophers of art, etc. But what I do want to emphasize is this idea that Gide brings up here, and that Maritain quotes, the idea that for the artist, ethics is a branch of aesthetics. This is sneaky because on the one hand, there's a lot of truth to this. There is a lot of richness under this, you know, nominal sort of assertion. And Maritain gets at that a little bit. He recognizes that for the ancient Greeks especially, ethics and aesthetics were in many cases the same thing. You know, as much as I have spent a lot of time talking about Aristotle and Plato and, and this idea of the calon, the beautiful or the virtuous, um, as much as, you know, this, this has come up in the other lectures and as much as I don't want to get into it here for the same reasons that I don't want to get into Thomas Aquinas, it is worth noting that Gide is kind of pointing at this ancient Greek distinction and saying, no, this is how artists see ethics now as something that sort of adorns them. Being a good person is an aesthetic choice, just as being a bad person is an aesthetic choice. And there is no overarching objective morality to govern it. Now, this is obviously something that, Amer that Maritain has problems with. Um, he is a Christian. He recognizes an objective morality. His Christianity is complicated, and I'm not even sure how I'd be able to like weigh in on that, especially have not having read so many of his other writings, which are heavily theological. Um, but nonetheless, it is apparent that Maritain recognizes the worth of an artist, 
recognizes that that worth of an artist must exist in a world where God and Christianity exist, and has to somehow square what Christianity says about morality with what an artist is aspiring in that same responsibility of the artist to the artwork that Maritain acknowledges and recognizes. Um, the solution for Maritain is not the art for art's sake argument. He brings up the art for art's sake argument. He has an entire chapter, the entire second section of this lecture series is devoted to the question of art for art's sake. And while he is sympathetic to this idea, he does recognize, again, the responsibility the artist has to the artwork, and that that responsibility does in some way get in the way of, and indeed take over the responsibility to be a good person. For Maritain, there's no necessary contradiction between the making the work for art's sake and making a good work he's or a moral work he says carefully it's tricky like maritain doesn't come down and make a whole lot of very concrete and very sort of objectively controversial statements it is really tough to sort of pull out what he believes from what he's sort of meditating on here which is fine i'm essentially doing the same thing in this lecture series which is probably why it doesn't come off so well um a lot of the time but what I want to emphasize is where he sort of lands at the very end of that chapter on art for art's sake. Um, so he notes that the romantics especially, like, they had this ethics as aesthetics mindset that Geed seems to be championing here. You have, you know, writers like Byron or... Um, Goethe or Victor Hugo who themselves become larger than life, who themselves become sort of romantic heroes in their own right. You know, there is no greater Byronic hero you know, tragically in love, tragically handsome, tragically attractive than Byron himself going around seducing various people's wives and, you know, having various exciting sexual ex escapades. Um, but what is emphasized here is that this is a bad move in some cases. Like, let's look at the, the conclusion of uh, the responsibility, or, or the art for art's sake chapter um, on pages 64 and 65. Rousseau and the Romantics were the forerunners of the event, but the school of art for art's sake gave it its full dimensions. Through the effect of a strange dialectic, by virtue of the principle that the artistic value alone matters, this value, along with poetic creativity and the poetic act, instead of remaining enclosed in the ivory tower of art for art's sake, was to claim sovereignty over all of human life, and to perform a function which encompasses the destiny of mankind. In the Romantic period, Byron, Goethe, Hugo had made themselves heroes greater, as Mr. Blackmore puts it, than any of the heroes in their works. Arnold was making his claims that poetry might save the world by taking on the jobs of all the other functions of the mind at the expressive level. In short, what we're saying here is that through Romanticism, art became morality, effectively. It took over morality. Um, rather than sort of communicating moral truths, it communicated a moral imperative. Here is our romantic hero. Here is the person who lives the most artistic lifestyle, the most aesthetically pleasing lifestyle. Become that person. 
the artist became conflated with their hero, conformed to what their hero demanded, and what, you know, became the virtue of heroism in their work, which was itself very significantly divorced from traditional morality of the time. The Byronic hero is not a good person by most people's reckoning, even in the 19th century. The Byronic hero is a person who lives aesthetically, whose ethics is aesthetics. Then came the poet Modit, then the supreme seer whom Rimbaud glorified, and then the artist found that he had upon his hands the task of the del deliberate creation of conscience in a conscienceless society. Here is the other shoe dropping. The reason why romantic art sort of took the place of morality here and, you know, gave rise to the Byronic hero artist as well as the Byronic hero itself is because at this point morality had been chucked out the window. Which, you, if you know your history, there is truth here. This is the moment when the modern values, the, you know, faith in reason that had subsumed faith in God has given way to just pure chaos. Modernism has failed. The revolutions are sweeping Europe. The values that used to be in place have all gone away. As, as fewer and fewer people are believing in some kind of objective truth, the corollary is that fewer and fewer people are believing in some kind of objective morality. The consequence of this is that the artist, whatever they choose to celebrate, will become the morality of the time. What Maritain is noticing then is that the artist, whether they wanted it or not, has become the moral arbiter for our society. First in the 19th century with the likes of, you know, Byron sort of indirectly becoming the moral center of the universe to the later thinkers who are in fact self-conscious of this, like Tolstoy. Thus, as the French critic Jacques Riviere puts it, the writer has become a priest. All 19th century literature is a vast incantation toward the miracle. The ivory tower has become the cathedral of the world, the temple of the Pythoness, the rock of Prometheus, and the altar of supreme sacrifice. But notice Maritain's conclusion here. I submit that this very fact constitutes a refutation per absurdum of the theory of art for art's sake. In short, what Maritain is saying here is that art can't just be for art's sake. We don't read it that way. Yes, it's true that Gide may think that in order for the artist to function, they must somehow recognize that there is no moral consequence of what they are, what they are uh, saying. In order to write freely, in order to get at capital T truth, what Maritain and Gide would agree on is that the artist has to sort of recognize a irresponsibility, a lack of responsibility, that there is no responsibility here. But at the same time, there is a great responsibility. Art will be taken as moral, but it has to be written as though it isn't. That's the fundamental problem that Maritain seems to be identifying here. That is the conflict, the contrast, between serving beauty and serving morality. An artist who deliberately goes out of his way to serve morality is, in many cases, a flawed artist, by both Guide's and Maritain's assumptions. So the solution, then, for Maritain is to do what Mauriac prescribes, to purify the source. Now, 
according to Maritain and sort of his cripping off of what Moriac says, um, the solution to this arts, art for art's sake attitude is that we're just going to conflate the two. Instead of, you know, just saying art for art's sake and calling it a day, which is obviously absurd, too many people are taking art as the foundation for their present morality, what uh, Maritain, by way of Moriac, is suggesting is that by purifying the source, by making the artist impeccably moral, we will make their natural inclinations impeccably moral as well. You can have it both ways, in short. Gide can successfully say that the artist must, can feel, must feel unconstrained by some sort of moral imperative in order to make the perfect version of their artwork, but at the same time, since the artist is above reproach, that, more, that artwork will be impeccably moral because the artist who produced it will be impeccably moral. That's the assumption here. Or at least that is Maritain's solution. If the artist is supposed to create art totally subservient to beauty and not at all subservient to an overarching morality, then the artist must purify themselves first. They must get into the habit of being moral, and then their art will reflect that morality, and it will be no less good art as a consequence. It will not be artificial, it will not be forced, it will instead be purely from the artist's own wellspring of creative act of acti activity, as Gide seems to be suggesting, but because that wellspring is rooted in morality, it will also be rooted in morality. It will also be impeccably moral. Now, there are problems here. There are a lot of problems here. Like, I'm fascinated by the solution. I think that it's really interesting, but I definitely don't think that this is anything more than just word games, effectively. Um, like, far be it for me to be dumping on this poor guy, but, you know, at the end of the day, I, I have made my, you know, distance from many of these other artists pretty clear at this point. Um, you know, I, I had no problem with picking fights with Tolstoy. I had no problems with questioning what Gasset said. I definitely don't have a problem with questioning what Moriac is saying here. Um, or rather, what Maritain is saying here. Moriac, I'm, I'm really interested in Moriac. Like, as much as, you know, Andre Gide sounds fascinating and I would love to, you know, get more familiar with his work and read The Immoralists, I have a feeling that this is just going to be yet another writer where I'm going to pick up his book and, you know, get 50 pages in and just be utterly disgusted um, by, you know, how light they make, you know, things that I take seriously. Um, how, you know, they seem to think that it's totally okay for us to worship adulterers or something like that. Um, however, Moriac sounds utterly fascinating. Like, his Catholicism seems like it's deeply rooted enough that, you know, his philosophy of art is both affected by it, but also sort of rooted in it. Like, I'm really interested to, to read more of his work. I even bought, like, a whole collection of his novels. I'm, I'm very excited. Um, but at any rate, let's look at Maritain. Let's, let's talk about this purifying the source. Let's question it, both with Gide and sort of outside of what Gide has to say. Let's question this whole paradigm that he seems to be stuck in, this trap that he's elaborately built for himself before he, you know, does in fact find a way out of it. Because, on the one hand, there are a lot of presuppositions here that I just don't buy. I don't buy that Gide is unassailable. I don't buy that the canon is unassailable. I don't buy that, you know, that morality and 
and like beauty or this artistic integrity are somehow incompatible. Like I just have all of the questions here. Um, and rather than like getting lost in the weeds, I, I do kind of want to just take these problems and criticisms fairly systematically here. Um, on the first level, I want to kind of address, um, before we get into like the actual criticisms, I need to, you know, take my time. Let's look at some of the other things that Maritain has to say. I want to look at the art for the art for the people chapter, um, specifically because I think there's some really interesting ideas in there that we need to discuss and confront. Um, in general, Maritain makes it pretty clear that he is not, you know, standing for anything in the way of art for the people. That this is superficially bad and also morally bad and just nothing good can possibly come of the, the kind of communist imperative where all art must serve the, the good of the state. Um, he does, however, lay out two exceptions to this rule, two places where some sort of exterior concern can, in fact, uh, inform the art without perverting it in some way. Um, and this is on page 70 and 71. Uh, how is this possible, he asks. How can art's autonomy remain intact under such an incitation? In two ways, I think. Either because the human end intended remains completely extrinsic to the domain of art's activity, as the wages are for a worker, or the royalties for a writer, or success for any artist, or because that which moves the artist is fully integrated with his own creative subjectivity and creative experience. So we got two exceptions to the external concerns motivating the creation of still legitimate good art. One is it is totally external, i.e. you're just getting paid for it. You know, Charles Dickens getting paid to write a book and there being no limitations on what Charles Dickens can write in this particular case. Which, I have questions about this. Like, it is real easy to draw a straight line from, from Maritain saying that the royalties are entirely separate from the artist to discussing the sort of you know, art for the sake of making money in the way that commercial art is, you know, deliberately popular and, like, very deliberately avoiding making any sort of political statement in order to pander to as many people as possible. The same sort of thing that we got talking about last time and that I got very grumpy about here seems to me to be relevant to our grumpiness now. Um, the idea that an, art, an artist can produce a great work of art untouched by financial considerations when it was written explicitly for those financial considerations is tricky. Like, even if we will allow, as Maritain seems to, that it is entirely extrinsic. It's not like the military is funding your art with the express purpose that it has to be represented positively, the way that they often do with Hollywood movies, by the way. Um, laying aside that exception, even if it's like there is more money available to artists who appeal to a certain demographic, or there is grant money available for artists with a certain philosophical leaning, that sounds suspicious to me. Does it mean that a work, great work of art can't be produced under those considerations? No. But there are other moral considerations here about where that money is coming from. Yes, in addition to talking about the artists and their morality, we should definitely be talking about, especially today, the patron and their morality. Um, if, in fact, you know, the Ayn Rand Institute is funding with grants young artists who are writing about a pro-objectivist perspective, 
we should be questioning both the artists that are produced through these grants as well as the business of providing grants to these artists in the first place. As much as we tend to argue that, you know, the like free market will take care of itself and that it is essentially amoral and that any kind of morality can thrive in a perfectly capitalistic system, that is also nonsense. Um, like, we should definitely be questioning what happens when Amazon funds the making of movies or the making of books. What happens when Disney goes out and, you know, funds movies and funds books. We should be asking questions about, you know, is there a fundamental conflict of interest when all of a sudden we're seeing a whole bunch of, like, pro-environmental uh, antagonists in various corporate properties. Doesn't it strike anyone as being suspicious that Thanos has a theoretically pro-environmentalist stance and turns out to be the villain of the entire Marvel Cinematic Universe? Like, oh, I want to increase sustainability, but I'm going to do it with genocide. Like, no, does this not rub anybody the wrong way? Do, are we not questioning this? Should we not be questioning the fact that Marvel frequently receives, you know, material from the military as long as they portray the military in a fairly positive stance? Something that they did for, like, all the early Iron Man movies and Captain Marvel and a whole bunch of other stuff? Like, no, th this doesn't make anyone suspicious. This this doesn't seem a little bit dodgy. Yes, this is dodgy. Good grief. Um... For Maritime's purposes, yes. If there is just money out there, if, like, a publisher is willing to say, write anything, we will pay you, I don't have a problem with that, and I don't think Maritime has a problem with that, and I think that's specifically the situation that Maritime is pointing to here. But that's not how it works. Um, like, even for an extremely established artist, that's not how it works. How did that artist get established in the first place? Where did their first book come from? And... Is that why they are getting the funding now? Is that why they're getting the blank slate? We shouldn't be just questioning the morality of the individual artist. We need to be questioning the, the morality of the system that produces artists. Isn't it true that only the artists who agree with the ideas of major publishers or major distributors or major movie you know, companies... Isn't it true that they're the ones who are going to be making the movies, writing the books, and getting them out there where people can see them? Um, to sort of go back to our discussion of Bradbury for a moment, you know, when Bradbury was making the pretty broad sweeping claim, if you disagree with my novel, get your own typewriter and write whatever you want, that's kind of nonsense coming from the guy who is an established author, has an established audience, and has a ton of people publicizing and making sure that his work gets out there noticed and you know published as broadly as they can whereas anyone who just picks up a typewriter and tries to do the same thing is forced to either kowtow to the same you know mob that bradbury is in fact serving or alternatively to risk the possibility of never being seen at all um it's not a level playing field it's not totally equal would it be great for artists to just be able to get paid no matter what they produce? Yes. But Maritain is very much glossing over a very real problem here and just sort of assuming that this is a totally fine excuse. And that's clearly not the case. You know, he's saying essentially that, like, yeah, art can be non-propagandistic if it's just money for the job that they're doing. 
But again, we spent the entire lecture last time talking about how the CIA was sort of quietly funding deliberately apolitical art and sort of trying to cultivate a culture where artists were not political in an effort to make politics itself uncool. That can also be propaganda. Um, saying that there is nothing wrong with the world quietly through you know silence supporting the status quo is itself propaganda in a way. So yeah, I'm just going to shut that one down. But the second argument here I find more interesting. Um, in the other case, when the poet obeys an idea or a passion which is dear to him, especially a passion or an idea as remote in itself from spiritual creativity as a social idea or a social passion is, there is no doubt a risk involved because such a passion or idea while taking part in the operation of art remains, as long as it has not been integrated in creative experience or intuitive emotion, a factor external to art and thus risks, risks superseding the requirements of art or preying upon them. Thus it is that it is bad luck as a rule for a poet to become a national poet, though in certain instances good poems have been written under the fire of national or even political passion. So what Maritain is suggesting is, on the one hand, it is okay if the like external principle is totally external and is in the form of like a command or wage or whatever, and the artist is free to work within that command or wage, which again... I think is very oversimplistic. On the other hand, we have the poet is self-motivated. The artist is directly motivated by their own ideals, their own morality, to produce a work which is supporting that morality. Maybe it's Victor Hugo, who is super excited and passionate about this building that he wants to preserve and save. Or maybe it is, you know, Tolstoy, motivated by his own Christian compassion. Who knows if it is in fact that rooted intellectual idea, something that the artist themselves believes passionately and is composing this work to give vent to, there is at least a significant possibility of a great work of art being produced nonetheless. This is tricky, but I think is ultimately important to acknowledge here. Since Maritain is stressing the sort of responsibility of the artist to both beauty on the one hand and morality on the other, this also seems like an elegant solution. This seems to be a pretty good example of purifying the source, as Moriac puts it. Um, this is, okay, I believe in this important social agenda, therefore I am producing this work of art that trumpets and, and attempts to convey this important social agenda, and therefore the work of art isn't compromised, even if it is, at the end of the day, polemical or directed. And this is tricky. Because on the one hand, we recognize that we don't want to get preached at. There are works of art that are, at the end of the day, preachy. Like, I think right off the top of my head of Thomas Hardy's Jude the Obscure. Like, I think I talked about it earlier on in this lecture series, but it is so aggressively polemical about the evils of the institution of marriage that it kind of turns into complete farce at some moments. Like, I, I don't know, I, I definitely couldn't take seriously the prospect of all of their small children hanging themselves because of how miserable they are as a consequence of their parents not being able to, you know, be happy in marriage. Like, that just seemed pretty absurd to me. I know other people who are really moved by that scene, though, so I really have no, you know, idea whether I am just a monster or, you know, actually have something to say on this front. But I would also tend to point to things that are widely 
rallied against. Something like the extremely polemical portions of War and Peace, where Tolstoy just breaks ranks and immediately spends like uh, pages talking about you know political philosophy, or for that matter, the later works of Tolstoy that are aggressively Christian and sort of less insightful into the human condition as a consequence. Novels like Resurrection, for example. And this, too, is something that Maritain is conscious of. He points out later on, like in the, the last section, that you, religion frequently corrupts art. Like a religious conversion and the artist sort of trying to propagate and preach religious truth, Christian truth, often tends to pervert the artwork and make it inferior to the work that that artist produced before their conversion. You know, pointing to Tolstoy is kind of the perfect example here. Anna Karenina seems to be a far superior novel than Resurrection, although many of Tolstoy's short works after his conversion do in fact hold up to scrutiny and are masterpieces in their own right. On the one hand, Tolstoy is very successful at integrating his Christianity with his sort of observations about the world when he doesn't subordinate his observations about the world to his Christianity. In that sense, I tend to think that Maritain is really onto something here. This idea that the artist has to somehow properly like dissolve his convictions into his artistic perspective to believe so firmly in the truth of what they are preaching and what they are trying to communicate that it comes off naturally. That it, he does not have to sacrifice the truth or the beauty of what he is writing in order to get at the morality that he is trying to get across. So, in that respect, I can see what Maritain is doing here. But the trouble is, that's just frequently not how it works. Like, artists who have successfully purified the source according to Moriac or according to Maritain's lights don't necessarily produce great works of art all the time. And those artists who haven't purified the source, who do have sort of this, you know, confusion or brokenness about them, often produce relentlessly moral work. Um, it's considerably more complicated than this. But even on the theoretical level, even, you know, if we accept that or that Maritain is, you know, a Thomist and that he's trying to reconcile these sort of big philosophical ideas apart from our experience, apart from any concrete examples. Like, I'm sitting here thinking, dude, how did you read Thomas? Like, Aquinas has a solution for this problem, and it's an incredibly elegant solution to this problem. Like, I'm not even sure that Aquinas can even really wrestle with this problem because of that solution, namely the simplicity of God. Like, for Thomas Aquinas, you know, it is right there in the metaphysics and the very early sections of the Summa Theologica, beauty is goodness. Like, that, that's his whole point there. Like, God is good because God is all of these qualities, and all of these qualities are one another. So there is no distinction between beauty and goodness, and by that logic, you end up at something like Tolkien or Lewis arguing that great art must be necessarily moral because beauty is necessarily moral, and ugliness and immorality are one and the same thing. This is, honestly, to me, way more compelling than virtually anything that Mar Maritain comes up with. But it's also ignoring the assumptions that Maritain is making, namely, again, that Gide is a great artist. To say this would be to basically say Gide is garbage, I assume. 
Um, it is to say that an artist who depicts a rape scene beautifully is not doing any of those things because that is a contradiction in terms. There is no such thing as a beautiful rape scene because rape is inherently immoral and therefore inherently ugly. And that's where I tend to stand. Like, don't get me wrong, like, sudden revelation of Professor Kozlowski's own artistic philosophy, I am definitely standing on the lines of the thing that is beautiful cannot be immoral because morality is beautiful. Whether you can take that with the Greeks or you can take that with Aquinas, you can take that with my Christianity, like, you can explain that in a wide variety of ways, but that much better explains my experience and my interactions with artwork. Like, it's just the case. Now that said, we are dealing with an idea of beauty here, which I think is more complicated than the one that I suspect I hold. I again said at the outset that I don't get beauty and I try to avoid the beauty discussion as much as possible. Apparently Maritain exists in a world where beauty can be immoral. Where Andre Gide's immoral art can be beautiful. Where the Marquis de Sade's immoral art, art preaching immorality, preaching literal sadism, can be viewed as somehow beautiful, as somehow properly a work of art and properly a great work of art, even if it is, at the end of the day, fundamentally immoral. And on some level, there's a part of me that's very much like skin-crawling, disgusted by this prospect. On another level, I'm willing to entertain this possibility. I'm willing to listen to what Maritain has to say about it. But Maritain doesn't seem to be interrogating his own assumptions enough for us to really get at that in the body of his own work. So once again, I'm going to be lending Maritain some benefit of the doubt. We're going to give him more than he necessarily offers. We're going to try and justify the problem that Maritain has and attempt to answer it better than Maritain does. Let's put it that way. Let us assume the possibility, or even the reality, of what André Gide is trying to get across to us. That there is, in fact, a place for immorality in art. Let's assume that that is the case. Because as much as, again, Maritain doesn't make a convincing argument, I haven't read enough Gide to see whether he's got a point there, I have read enough you know, art that is, at the end of the day, sort of ugly or beautiful, but in a dark and twisted way, to appreciate that this is a thing that exists. On the one hand, Maritain confronts this in this idea of sainthood and the sort of contradiction between sainthood and canonization. The idea that he seems to be getting at here is that it is okay to not be a saint for an artist, and yet you can still be moral, it's complicated. The distinction here seems to be that, like, canonical sainthood, i.e. every aspect of your life is totally perfected, is totally, like, divorced from evil, is incompatible with art because art must traffic in conflict, and therefore must traffic to some degree in evil, in disagreement, in sin, in one of these things. And... I see that point. I recognize that there should be a distinction there, and I think that this is actually a fairly fruitful distinction that will get us where we want to go here. 
But what I want to do is sort of separate this from the sainthood discussion, the like perfection of the person and the purification of the self discussion, because honestly, I don't think that's viable. Like, I don't think that you can, in fact, expect an artist to necessarily purify themselves in order to produce truly good artwork, if only because so many compelling works of art have been produced by people who are, at the end of the day, as little purified as it gets. Again, if we were to list all of the perfect artists that have produced perfect works, we might get as far as Dante, maybe depending on, you know, how we understand Dante and his quest for sort of, like, redemption in the production of the Divine Comedy. And then maybe Tolkien, maybe C.S. Lewis, maybe, especially coming from that Christian perspective. What I think is more telling, and what I think is more profitable, has less to do with the purification of the artist's morality and the purification of the artist's eye. We need to talk about what the artist sees, not what the artist is or does. Because I think that's the best explanation for how someone like Hemingway, who is a right bastard in his own right, can somehow produce works of art that not only compel us, but also compel us by their depictions of more real bastards. But as much as Hemingway is kind of a perfect example here, I want to go for an even more paradigmatic example, because this one definitely struck me as I was driving around today, thinking about these problems, trying to reckon with, you know, okay, so let's accept the possibility of there is a virtue for sin to be an art, and an artist must therefore be familiar with sin. When I was sitting there thinking about this in abstract terms, that didn't make any sense to me. When I started thinking about it in concrete terms suddenly it all clicked. So the question I want to answer has less to do with Gide and more to do with Edgar Allan Poe. Because I love me some Edgar Allan Poe. Like, no question in my mind, I love this dude's work. I have read literally the complete works of Edgar Allan Poe, like, start to finish. There is nothing Poe wrote that I haven't read at this point, at least not in the way of poetry or, you know, short stories or novels or whatever. And I have loved him forever. Like, he, I probably encountered Poe for the first time when I was in grade school, like early grade school, like when I was 10 or when I was 8. Um, like I definitely had a collection of Poe's Tales of Terror in the like Great Illustrated Classics edition and I wore out the binding on that sucker. Um, like I could not read Poe fast enough and as soon as we got to Poe in high school I was, I was already like fluent in his work and we have to... Start our discussion of Poe by saying that dude was A, really messed up as a person, and B, wrote about really messed up stuff. So he is kind of the perfect example here. The question that we are left with is, is Poe's work moral? And on the one hand, the sort of obvious conclusion is, no, he's like talking about murderers and he's talking about bad people and he's, you know, glorifying horror and he's, you know talking about the most deep, dark, insidious parts of the human experience. But I've never felt like Poe is a bad person as a consequence. I don't feel like a worse person for reading The Cask of Amontillado, even though that obviously is like this perfect example of 
Poe sort of glorifying and romanticizing someone doing something hideously evil. Like, think about this for a moment. It's one thing for us to sort of, you know, excuse something like the Telltale Heart. Like, the narrator in the Telltale Heart is clearly disturbed, he is clearly a bad person, and Poe makes it obvious to us that he is a bad person, and for that matter, he gets his just desserts in the end. He gets his retribution, he is caught, he confesses to the inspector, everything is ruined for him, the murder is, you know, solved. Or take, for example, the Mask of the Red Death. There is a justice to the Mask of the Red Death. These are all a bunch of jerks who have given off their civic duty, who have avoided the plague and avoided their responsibility to their, to their subservience. They show up at this wild party where they are recklessly celebrating despite the presence of this awful evil in the land they are supposed to be governing, and they receive their dust, just desserts. The Red Death shows up, everybody dies, it's horrifying and awesome, but at no point do you ever feel like there is, you know, necessarily an immorality being perpetrated here. Or take even the fall of the House of Usher. Again, all the bad people, all of the suffering, the incest is punished, the whole House of Usher falls, is swallowed up by the lake. It's horrifying, but at the same time, it serves our sense of vengeance. We feel righteous reading these works. Because at the end of the day, the bad guy who has done the horrible thing gets their just desserts. But this is obviously not the entire canon of Poe. You have works like The Black Cat, which really is kind of about terrible people experiencing terrible things that happen. Or The Premature Burial, which is just this poor dude who is ultimately treated to this horrifying experience. But even then, we can kind of explain it away insofar as it's like, well, Poe is getting at what it feels like to feel fear. He is exploring the nature of terror itself. There is kind of not a moral dimension here. But then we come to the cask of Admariato. Fortunato has committed all of these crimes, which are left completely unspecified, and yet we are assured by the narrator alone that it is worthy of murdering him. And then he proceeds to murder him in painstaking detail. Moment by moment, we are drawn into this man's twisted perspective, made party to his crime, and as he bricks up the last one, we feel a strange sort of satisfaction in it. Or maybe I'm just a weirdo. We are not invited to feel moral in this case. Montresor does not get his comeuppance. He is not punished in any way. What we feel instead is his satisfaction. We are invited to feel his satisfaction. We are invited to see him as righting a wrong, but we are also very conscious of the fact that that's total nonsense. We revel in spending a little bit of time in the mind of this twisted person. And we are not paid for it. We are not given some sort of moral justification for it. No, it just stands on its own. This bothers me. Not because, like, I read the story and I am bothered by it. But it bothers me now to sort of think about this. To recognize it in terms of what Maritain is talking about here. Because on its face, this is blatantly immoral. It is in some sense, inviting us to celebrate and romanticize exactly a person who's doing a horrible thing, who's murdering this person. On the very, very thinnest of excuses and explanations. 
But at the same time, I don't think anyone reads that story and is like, I want to totally be Montresor. Like, some of us do. Some of us recognize that there's a coolness to it. And these, this is the same sort of motivation that leads us to, like, admire or, you know, recognize the Joker in contemporary Batman media. Although that is definitely a subject that we cannot unpack here because there is just not enough time to do it. But Montresor has a lot of kinship with the Joker. Heck, Fortunato himself is wearing the Joker's bells, like the, the bells of the fool cap, um, when he is, in fact, bricked up into the, in this, you know, cellar. We are encouraged to look at, look at the world from Montresor's perspective and understand the world from Montresor's perspective, but at no point in time is Poe actually inviting us to commit a murder. We do, we are sort of invited to revel in that power, that mastery of the situation, and that, I will admit, is dangerous. That's where we go from, this is a fun story, even if it is about a really horrible thing that happens, to this is a story that could, in fact, be pernicious and cause people to do bad things. But I think the usual response to Montresor and the bricking up of Fortunato in the cask of Montiato has way less to do with a sort of reverence or worship or romanticism of Montresor and more to do with a very keen recognition that something about this is very true. That Poe is getting at something, not necessarily inviting us to feel the same thing, but sort of encouraging us to reflect and recognize that something of Montresor exists in us. Something about us wants to redress wrongs with no consequences, with in total power over the situation, and with an absolute sense of our own self-righteousness. And I think that the message that Poe is conveying, the message that we are quietly sort of swallowing and quietly taking to ourselves if we're reading this story properly, is that we should be scared of that person. That we want to be Montresor, and by wanting to be Montresor, we should definitely be on the lookout for any time we feel like Montresor. I think Poe, as much as the Cask of Amontillado is a complicated story, as much as there is almost certainly nuance that we haven't talked about here, I don't think we are encouraged to be Montresor, as fun as it might be to put it on for a little while. I think Poe is doing something infinitely more subtle, and that this does stand up as a work of art, not because it engages in this sort of Gidean, you know, revel of evil, but because it shows a very keen eye we see it properly. It may not be good, but it is true. And that's a distinction that I have been kind of wanting to talk about for a long time now. Because I think a lot of the artists that we have been talking about have been talking about sincerity in some respect, or have been talking about like proper representation of the world, or mimicry, or whatever, but Tolstoy is very confused on this subject and doesn't come to a terribly clear conclusion. I called it then the difference between realism and stylization. Here, it's kind of both, because it is super stylized here in Poe, but it is also relentlessly true. True things are moral, if only because they are true. If only because we then have to face the truth of this situation. 
And it is a pretty easy task to then draw a line from the cask of Amontillado and engage with lots of other seemingly immoral work. Maybe we could look at Andre Gide's The Immoralists in this light and see this as purely a depiction of evil, a sort of fascination with evil, a sort of exposition of evil, a way of laying evil bare, which does not celebrate, condone, or, for God's sake, just not, like, prescribe it. There is a difference there. It is a difference kind of like what Chesterton talks about in some of his um, Father Brown stories. Like, there is a particularly great Father Brown story where Father Brown emphasizes that there are two ways to avoid evil. One is to just abstain from it entirely and remain in perfect innocence, but that makes you kind of weak at the end of the day because you don't necessarily know how to avoid the problems that could come up. The more robust way that Father Brown himself prescribes is to be very familiar with it to be extremely familiar with, the, with it, to know evil so deeply and profoundly that it can no longer affect you. And yes, this is by far the more dangerous route. You are literally playing with fire, or at least the closest thing to moral fire that exists. But it is potent. It is powerful. And on the one level, there is an allure, a very dangerous allure, but I think the truly great writers who have produced the truly great works of art can in fact flirt with this allure and yet at the end of the day, leave it behind. Like the perfect example of this I tend to think is Dostoevsky. Like Dostoevsky is more than comfortable talking about the absolute utter viciousness, the complete depravity of various characters in his world. But... He never condones them, and at the end of the day, they are almost always punished, or at the very least revealed, to be depraved, evil, small, petty, and not worth following. That's the key. Dostoevsky is painfully familiar with evil. Poe is painfully familiar with evil. And yet they are not endorsing or condoning it. There is a difference between taking it deadly seriously and this sort of perverse fascination with it. This kind of thing that absolutely motivates some of the greatest horror writers who have ever lived, but not subsuming oneself to it. See, what Moriak suggests, this business of purifying the source, on the one hand, this could work. And I would love to read the work of a totally purified individual, someone who doesn't have a trace of evil left in them. And again, that's kind of why I point to someone like J.R.R. Tolkien, someone who is familiar enough with evil that it makes its mark on the page, but it is never thoroughly bad or perverse or tempting enough to ever provide a real threat to either the reader or the characters. As much as there are many characters in The Lord of the Rings who are tempted by power, tempted by the power of the ring, you will notice that the great heroes are almost totally immune to it. Or rather, their subject, or their sort of like being subjected to that temptation is limited. As much as Frodo is victimized by the power of the ring and taken over, it is always recognized as an outside force, not as necessarily as something in Frodo himself. That, to me, indicates a sort of purity of perspective. 
That is Tolkien not dealing with the nature of evil as evil and instead prescribing a truly pure, truly absolute good perspective on the world. By contrast, you look at someone like Dostoevsky who is more than aware of the temptations of evil and is thoroughly and relentlessly fighting against it in work after work after work. So what I want to do here, instead of sort of defining this difference between sainthood and whatever it is that, that Maritain is kind of pointing out here, this, this argument that sainthood itself is sort of foreign territory for the artist, even if it is sort of perfected for themselves, what I want to stress is that an artist can be a saint and still write about some of the most depraved evil acts ever committed. The trick is how keen is their vision and how well have they overcome it because that is dangerous you know as much as poe has a very keen eye about evil you have to wonder if he doesn't fall into it from time to time you have to wonder if maybe poe is a little more montresor than he would like to admit but at the very least, his depiction of it, his othering of it, his putting it on the page is an indication to us that he has overcome it, that he knows it so deeply, has his perspective so far removed from it, that he can talk about it objectively, render it to us in its total sort of identity without himself being touched by it. Whereas you could contrast this against someone who is unaware of the evil that they are being touched by, unaware of the sort of corruption that has infected their work. Something like, for example, Conrad. You know, as much as he is talking about the heart of darkness and trying to other this sort of perspective on European imperialism, he does so with a complete ignorance of his own racial and biases and assumptions. At the end of the day, the work remains flawed. Yes, he is right to other himself from imperialism, and he clearly has a very keen understanding of the evils of colonialism and imperialism, but he does not realize how much it has affected him as well. He still sees black people as necessarily inferior, and the entire symbolism of his work circulates around comparing supposedly better white people to them. That's a broken one. That's a work that fails to see evil clearly enough. That's the deciding factor, at least by my reckoning. Poe saw, compartmentalized, and othered his evil. Got it away from him. Essentially exorcised it into the story, in some respect. And in doing so, created something compelling, but at the same time not tempting. Whereas Conrad has in fact othered some of his colonialism, some of his imperialistic tendencies, but in his own ignorance of his own other racial assumptions, ends up preserving a lot of those, unbeknownst to himself. Which honestly, you could make the same argument about Poe, since, you know, you've got the murders of the Rue Morgue and the whole orangutan business, which we don't talk about. I want to draw that distinction here because it's not one that Maritain is drawing, but I think it is a way more robust distinction. I think it makes room for territory like great writers exploring great evil. 
I think it explains how you can still be a great artist, fundamentally moral, and still have a certain sort of fascination for this darkness in the world, a certain respect and appreciation for this evil. But it all has to do with how well you can see it apart from yourself. On the one hand, it needs to be personal. It needs to be something you feel deeply, or it isn't going to be compelling art. It isn't going to be infectious, as Tolstoy would put it. Montresor is compelling because Poe understands that power dynamic. Poe wants it badly, or wanted it badly. But it no longer affects him that way. It is no longer something that he still wants. He recognizes it is a bad thing in him, and he distances himself from it. By contrast, you might even point to the work of Mary Carr, who doesn't seem able to distance herself from her own feelings toward her own mother, even though that is essentially what this book is about. This is the problem. An artist can still be a terrible person if the business of art successfully divorces them from those ideas. And that isn't to say that they are, as a consequence, a good person. Dostoevsky still had a gambling problem, but he was able to distance himself enough from that gambling problem to talk about it objectively and recognize its evil in something like The Gambler. Or alternatively, you can see David Foster Wallace talking about alco alcoholism fairly objectively in The Infinite Jest, talking about it on a personal and compelling level, even if it isn't something he's necessarily overcome himself. The artist doesn't necessarily need to be perfect in order to render it objective, in order to present it in a way that divorces themselves from that temptation, from that evil, from that rottenness. Purification isn't necessarily the solution, I don't think. Instead, it is probably closer to, as I've said, exorcism. It is about temporarily stepping away adopting the perspective you wish you had instead of adopting the perspective that you do have and in doing so doing it without totally divorcing yourself from what you are at the end of the day you can be evil and talk about it as evil and that's more compelling than a person who's never been familiar with it now that said it's going to be real hard to tell the lines on this one. Like, I point to the cask of Amontillado as being largely harmless, and that might not be fair. Maybe that is just my own interpretation of it. Maybe we should be holding it up alongside something like The Dark Knight as, you know, a work of art that is effectively compartmentalizing it and that shouldn't be interpreted as endorsing what the Joker has to say, but some people are still buying it anyway. Or take David Fincher's Fight Club, for example, a movie that is very much walking that line, if only because, as much as it is a very obvious semiotic condemnation of the exact anarchist perspective that Tyler Durden represents, a lot of people apparently haven't made that particular observation. But I think that is going to have to be a discussion for another day. Because that has to do with the audience side, and that's something we're going to need to talk about with Lewis next week. All the more reason to talk about him next week and not after we get to Sartre. But as far as the artist is concerned, we have to recognize that there is a distinction here. 
Scorsese can depict the Wolf of Wall Street as both compelling and desirable, but also evil and a symptom of a thoroughly broken society with significant mastery because he has overcome that perspective, because he distances or exercises it for the purposes of this text. Or take Nightcrawler, doing much the same thing. These are works that do occasionally walk that line and are frequently interpreted against their original aims, but for the author themselves, that's the transition that needs to take place. That's the manipulation that has to occur. That's why we can still have Hemingway being a giant misogynistic jerk and also producing great works exposing and revealing and exploring the psyches of giant misogynistic jerks. That, I think, is a way more robust explanation than what Maritain has to offer here. But what that leaves us with is a kind of complicated contemporary problem when it comes to approaching the discussion of art and the artist in this way. Because we have now allowed for the possibility of terrible people writing upstanding art in some respect. We have justified the existence of a David Foster Wallace who goes home and abuses his girlfriends, but then writes like an angel when it comes to something like Infinite Jest. We can, in essence, perpetuate Mary Carr's suffering by just sort of blithely accepting the work without recognizing the awfulness that came about in the production of it. It's tricky here. But I want to sort of explore this discussion in by sort of separating the kinds of relationships between art and artists that we are likely to run into in the world at large. And the first example that we need to talk about of this sort of like broken artist creating art is we have to reckon with the possibility that yes, there are in fact artists out there who are bad people making art that encourages bad behavior. Good art that is itself immoral in some respect. A talented artist has a bad streak, is themselves an evil person perhaps, and produces a work of art that supports that evil perspective despite the fact that it is extremely well constructed and persuasive. That's by far the most dangerous form of art there is. Like, without any question in my mind, like, even if we haven't bothered to define, you know, what immorality is in this situation, the possibility of an artist being able to produce an incredibly compelling and ultimately evil work is the worst possible case scenario here. And it does happen. Like, I want to emphasize this. You know, there are some obvious classical examples, perhaps Racine with his misogyny, or the Marquis de Sade suggesting that all morality is bankrupt, or we could look at Nabokov saying that all, we should just chuck out our morality in something like Ada, um, or even for that matter, I would point to some of the early works of Michael Bay and his kind of just total disinterest in presenting race fairly or you know presenting all minorities and women as though they're just loud and obnoxious and bad you know just watch any transformers movie and you'll see it all over that freaking work and it is kind of telling about who bay is and what he values and what his perspective is it is for the transformers movies often bad art conducted badly and therefore not really in this category but at the same time it kind of reveals the evil of the artist through the medium of the art if anything it might even be worse 
because it seems that by all reckoning, Bay himself is kind of like not a terrible person in real life, or at least isn't like actively anti-feminist or something. It's not like he's going around supporting fascists or anything, despite some other authors on this list. Um, but nonetheless, if he is in fact using his art as a mouthpiece for encouraging people to continue to be bad, whether it is continuing to see black people as loud ethnic and therefore you know not worth paying attention to or seeing women as dangerous traps for men who will like try and kill them or destroy their sexuality that's bad and we should probably should not be buying into that sort of nonsense um but today i tend to think that that is comparatively rare or at the very least I'm not going to get terribly deep into those artists who are, in fact, working on this stuff. On the one hand, I definitely don't want to promote them any more than they already have, if they are, in fact, doing some kind of propagandistic, you know, like, this is what morality is supposed to look like, and it is truly warped out of all regard. Um, but on the other hand, what I do kind of want to stress is that the artists that I do actually have some pretty deep moral problems with, artists like Nabokov or... Oh, who is the guy who wrote The Unbearable Lightness of Being? I, I cannot handle him anymore. Just, no. Um, his sort of total abrogation of moral responsibility just absolutely rubbed me the wrong way. Like, on the one hand, a lot of these artists I don't think ever make a whole lot of impression. Like, generally, I think our culture at large sees a sort of... a Thomistic union of beauty and goodness... So instead, we tend to think that a well-made work of art also has a good moral to it, and it's pretty rare that that is not the case. But even if we were to look at something like, I don't know, Sam Peckinpah's Straw Dogs, something that is, at the end of the day, kind of relentlessly nihilistic but extremely well-crafted, it's really hard to say that it's necessarily immoral. It is, again, descriptive. It is, at the end of the day, like Poe's Montresor, something that, Peckinpah presumably has exorcised from himself. Something more dangerous might be Joaquin Phoenix's performance in the Joker movie, for example, whose director immediately, like, eludes me right now. Something where the morality is very confused and therefore very open to interpretation and especially dangerous in our particular political situation where there is a sizable contingent of people who are looking for any excuse and any reason to be justified in their hatred of a lot of things that are otherwise very good and noble. So, on the one hand, we have to recognize, yes, there are artists out there who are bad people making art that convinces other people to be bad as well. They are bad people making immoral art. Um, it may be good art in the sense of high-end quality, but it remains immoral. This is one category of these kinds of artists. The second category, though, is the ones that we kind of started our discussion with. The artists who are obsessed, the artists possessed by inner demons, the artists who are terrible people at home, but whose art betrays a sort of clear-sighted recognition of evil, and therefore can in fact be held up to be very moral in their own right. David Foster Wallace seems to be a pretty good example here, Hemingway seems to be a pretty good example here, Poe seems to be a pretty good example here. We might point to Joss Whedon and talk about his art and sort of how it elevates womanhood and this sort of heroic female character, even as Whedon himself apparently was utterly terrible to certain women in his sort of purview. Um, 
But even so, like, I suspect that one's more complicated because it seems more, I don't know, like, it seems like those representations of women in Joss Whedon's work has more to do with a kind of, like, exhibitionism than actual, like, heroism. It's complicated, and Whedon is probably a more complicated case than, you know, purely just here is a bad person who wrote a book that is, you know, very moral or very high-minded. Um, I would point instead to, like, the secondary works of Michael Bay, something like Pain and Gain, something that is, in fact, relentlessly nihilistic and extremely well-crafted, um, but ultimately does not reflect some kind of twisted morality or prescribe some sort of awful behavior. At the end of the day, Bay is keenly aware of the moral implications of bad people doing stupid things and making us aware of the bad people doing stupid things. Like, Michael Bay is at his most tolerable when he is in nihilism mode, I think, rather than, you know, when he's just letting whatever hit, hit the movie screen and not caring about the consequences of his actions. Um, I'd also point to, you know, other writers and thinkers and artists who have, in fact you know, really bad private lives, whether it's Hemingway with his drinking and his misogyny, or Luc Besson and his domestic abuse problems, or Justin Roiland, who recently was sort of, like, axed from the Rick and Morty team um, for very much the same reasons. On some level, what I want to emphasize about this group of artists is that their apparently moral outlook is in some way separate from their identity as people. Like, I realize that this is a very fine line to walk, and this is a very controversial issue to discuss. Um, but in general, if you're going to hang around literature for any length of time, you're going to eventually have to deal with the vices of the people who write the stuff you like. It can be as old school as Henry VIII makes beautiful music like Green Sleeves and Pastime with Good Company, but occasionally executes his wives, to something as recent as, I really thought the Valerian movie was really cool, but I'm sorry to hear that Lupusson is kind of a tool in life. And this is not to try and, like, downplay how bad these people are and how much, you know, they should, in fact, be shamed for what they have done. And, you know, I definitely don't want to downplay David Foster Wallace as a giant asshole to everyone who he apparently interacted with, and especially the women in his life. That is well documented, and I am not at all trying to downplay what Mary Carr has to say about it or at all excuse David Foster Wallace for what he did. That's not what I'm saying. What I'm saying is it's compatible for a terrible person to make beautiful art. Beautiful, even moral art. David Foster Wallace honestly seems like the kind of perfect example of that. It's not to celebrate him. He was a bad person. But he had some truly great insights into what made himself bad, I suspect. He was honest about his evil, at least on the face of his artwork. Apparently he did not admit any of the terrible things that he was doing in his private life, but again, it's complicated. What I do want to do is separate this from a third group, though. Because on the one hand, most of the artists that I have been talking about in this category of people who made bad, or people who are bad but who make good art, is they are either people who are dead, 
and therefore have you know no further effect on the world. You know, we don't have to worry about Henry VIII doing terrible things with the money that he makes uh, from us playing green sleeves in church. Or their evil is entirely private, not something that they are actually preaching in any respect. You know, Luc Besson isn't trying to convince everyone to become serial adulterers or rapists or sexual abusers, not by any extent of the imagination. Um, if anything, he's just going quiet because he feels guilty or, you know, it is not to his advantage to say anything. You can definitely criticize him morally, sure. And you can criticize his artwork, too. I'm not saying that he's, like, the, you know, perfect artist or anything. Um, I'm not saying that, like, his works are masterpieces. Um, but I am saying that you can effectively divorce I like this guy's art from I think this guy is a terrible person. Those are not, incompat or not incompatible assertions. You can say both things. I think David Foster Wallace's writing is gorgeous. I think David Foster Wallace is a terrible person. That's not a contradiction. Um, what I do want to do, though, is distinguish these people from the people who are using their platform to be awful. Like, on the one hand, we've got the people who are, in fact, straight-up terrible people trying to convince everyone else to be terrible people. Whether it is fascist YouTubers or, you know, misogynists claiming that, you know, like, great works of art that were misogynistic are themselves totally harmless and, and not, you know, a problem. Like, that's definitely one category, and we should definitely not be patronizing these people or supporting their work or even complimenting them for their artistic perspective. You know, as much as we might have some difficulty saying, you know, hey, Nabokov is a really great artist, but he frequently talks about and sort of prescribes total immorality or amorality, I find it hard to accept that because, honestly, I don't think most of Nabokov's later work is all that good. Um, again, for me, I am just profoundly offended both artistically and morally by something like Ada or Pale Fire. It's not just, you know, bad because it says that you should do bad things. Um, by contrast, though, I want to look at the people who do not necessarily prescribe evil in their work but who profit and turn their profit to evil means when we support them. And this is where we come back around to J.K. Rowling. Um, I don't have a problem with buying David Foster Wallace's books, and I don't have a problem saying that I like David Foster Wallace as an author. Weirdly enough, I do have a problem with saying that I like J.K. Rowling's books at this point. Because to promote J.K. Rowling is to promote her agenda. And her agenda is very much anti-trans, very much fascistic, and against a lot of things that I believe. And, like, I literally have been sitting through the last week watching all of the Fallout after the Hogwarts Legacy game. And on the one hand, I kind of don't have a horse in this race... I'm not trans, I'm not Jewish, I am not one of the people that is apparently being targeted by either her sort of extracurricular activities or whatever the works themselves seem to be prescribing. But I also just don't want to support her, is kind of what it comes down to. Like, I don't consider myself a trans ally by any extent of the imagination, not because I don't 
like trans people or anything like that. But just because I don't think I have the right to claim that I am a trans ally. I'm a Christian. I hang out with a lot of Christians. I don't pick fights on behalf of trans people with those Christians as much as I think that those Christians are frequently very wrong and being unsympathetic and unloving and terrible. Um, but at the same time, like, if in fact a trans person came and confided in me, trusted what I had to say, at the end of the day, I would be a Christian. Like, I'd, I'd have to say, you know, yeah, I don't think this is the right way to live your life. I don't dislike you for that. I don't think that you don't have the right to do that. I don't think we should take away your rights to do that. Like, should transgender people be able to use the bathrooms they want? Yeah, that doesn't seem to be an issue to me. Um, should we as a culture support them and make sure that they get appropriate medical treatment? Yes, absolutely. This is not a question to me. Would I promote their lifestyle? No. Because I do have some ideological problems there. But J.K. Rowling is attacking them. That's different. Like, I have ideological problems. I keep them to myself. I don't try to promote them. Like, I admit to them because it would be dishonest not to. But I'm not going on Twitter and saying, you know, true Christians or whatever should do X, Y, Z. Like, that's not what I'm doing. So I do follow quite a few trans artists and a quite, quite a few trans content creators and have read a couple of books by trans writers and in many cases I've thought they were good and in many cases I've thought they were bad and it really doesn't matter one way or the other. Like, once again, I see the artist as being logically distinct from the work that they've produced, as I've just spent a lot of time explaining, so I don't have a problem with reading a work that is openly, pr like, promoting trans lifestyle that's cool with me if is it extremely well created okay that's fine like is it in fact compassionate towards the people that it's talking about yeah that's fine too then we're good like again no horse in this race um but i see why this move is different like I recently watched a video by Jim Sterling, the, the Jimquisition, where he was talking about how by if you go ahead and buy Hogwarts Legacy, you can no longer consider yourself a trans ally. That was the essential argument he was making. You have actively supported a person who is hurting our community. I am not saying that you are a transphobe. I am not saying that you are, you know, a homophobe. But what Jim Sterling at the end of the day, or jim stephanie Sterling at the end of the day specifically said was you cannot call yourself an ally anymore and i totally see her point absolutely no question there is a huge difference between i do not support your position and i am actively funding someone who is attacking you i don't have a horse in the trans discussion in some sense but I do have a horse in the civil rights discussion. And I think that J.K. Rowling, in attacking the basic civil human rights of trans people, is a terrible person as a consequence. And no, I'm not going to buy Hogwarts Legacy, even if it turns out to be a great game. And not just because I am not interested in the wizarding world or not buying $60 games at this point. Like... My wife literally said to me, you know, I've been having a conversation with a person at work about this game. It sounds interesting. And I'm like, let's wait for it to, you know, become used at GameStop so all of the money we pay does not go to J.K. Rowling. Not a dime ends up in her pocket. That's where I stand. 
And I tend to think that's a pretty defensible position. And, you know, I'm sure that by saying this, I'm subjecting myself to lots of criticism on all sides of the discussion. But no, I think that's the logical place to go here. Yes, I can totally s differentiate between a terrible artist and the good work that they have produced. But I cannot justify supporting them financially, giving them more of a platform, supporting their work openly, and therefore basically allowing their evil to propagate. That, to me, is immoral. That, to me, is a major line you do not cross. I don't want money to end up in the pockets of people who are promoting bad things, whether it is in their art or outside of their art. If you want to claim that Harry Potter is a good book, I'm cool with that. I still have my copies. I bought them ages ago, before this whole discussion had even gone down and when I was very ignorant of whatever J.K. Rowling's political perspectives are. And there is no advantage for me to just set them on fire. I find them interesting. I'm not a huge fan of the series. At the very least, I know that they are culturally relevant and I want to be prepared to talk about them if they come up. But I'm not going to patronize any Harry Potter stuff in the meantime. Because to me, that is, at this point, immoral. To me, that is supporting an agenda which I find pretty repulsive. Whether or not my opinions on the trans issues are relevant in this situation. Badness is badness here. So there's three kinds of bad people and their art. There are the bad people who are actively promoting badness in their art. Maybe it's, you know, Racine, maybe it's the Marquis de Sade, maybe it's, you know, any number of different propagandists or fascists or YouTube content creators who we should just, you know, totally ignore and let them fade into obscurity. Plenty of people on this list, especially in the internet of today, I would highly recommend that you do not give them anything. If they are promoting something evil, be it fascism or, you know, intolerance or racism or sexism or whatever, just ignore them and try not to give them any recognition, patronage, traffic, whatever. As for the people who are terrible people on their own time but produce great art, I don't necessarily have a problem with their art. I am willing to buy David Foster Wallace books. I am willing to buy Henry VIII, you know, music. I am willing to watch and pay and like buy on Blu-ray Michael Bay movies. Because I know that that money is essentially going to the studio and that Michael Bay's personal agenda is, at the end of the day, you know, helping dogs and, like, supporting the military, which I suppose is a little bit questionable, but it's not like he's donating or anything. But I do have a problem with any money that is going to support a problematic agenda. That is what happens when you support J.K. Rowling, that is what happens when you buy her new books or video games or go to her amusement parks or whatever. You can count me out on that one. And I think that's an important distinction for us to recognize and to make. We need to see the morality of these artists. We need to recognize and condemn when they are, in fact, being terrible. And we also need to recognize when what they are telling us in the way of their artwork isn't necessarily reprehensible, when it isn't necessarily bad. We need to recognize that it is somehow, mysteriously, possible to separate that art from the artist. 
either because we can in fact do a death of the author and you know pretend like there is no artist to talk about but also just because apparently in the whole business of creating art an artist can distance themselves from their evil enough to make something that is extremely compelling and extremely insightful but at the same time not itself propagating or encouraging evil in some way i don't have a problem with that even if i can't necessarily explain all the metaphysics or reasoning behind it as much as i think i did come to as good an explanation as we are likely to find that this is somehow a form of exorcism that a person can in fact see their own evil and see it as evil so clearly as to be able to stick it on the page or on the screen i don't think that's necessarily a contradiction but that is a different thing from the evil person who just gets to do more evil because you support them. If David Foster Wallace was still alive, I'm not sure I'd be as comfortable buying his books. If only because he might use the money that he makes from my sale to do more bad things. Now, admittedly, I might be more okay with it if it is stuff happening in his private life than in his public life, but even then, there would be questions. If the information came out, like, I'm not sure I want to support Kevin Spacey in any new roles anytime soon, if only because I'm not entirely sure what he's going to be doing with that money. Even though I do think he's a fine actor and I don't have a problem watching his movies now that he has been outed, now that he is not making any money off of them. That's where it gets complicated. But there is a distinction here. We can appreciate great art by bad artists. We can see bad people be moral when they do art. But we shouldn't excuse them on that basis. We shouldn't say, you know, David Foster Wallace was a bad person, but look at how much of a great artist he is, as though somehow that exonerates him. No, he is just both. He is both a bad person and a great artist. He shouldn't be emulated, but maybe his style should. Maybe we can follow his artistic integrity and, you know, follow in his artistic footsteps while also not being a giant trash bag person to the people involved. At the end of the day, that's what I think we need to recognize here. I think an artist with demons can, in fact, empower and make their art better. But I think we have to be very careful about it. And I don't think that's necessarily the ideal solution for the individual artist. I think Maritain is right, to some degree, to say that the artist's responsibility to his community is to be the best he can be. And if he can't do better than the evil that he is perpetrating in the world, then the art is not necessarily a greater evil. As much as Maritain wrestles with this possibility that, like, Gide is talking about how the demons, the evil, informs the work greater than goodness does, and as much as I don't think that's true at all, I do recognize that for some writers, for some artworks, that may be true. Maybe we wouldn't have the level of insight into the nature of evil that Poe gives us if Poe himself wasn't so deeply caught up in that world. But at the same time, we would be remiss to point out that Poe shows us a side of the 19th century American world that we often don't get to see. We are richer for his perspective because he was able to distance himself from it, because he was able to part ways with it in some way. 
maybe the demons do help sometimes but they certainly didn't help Poe we should be encouraging the artists we do bump into to be better David Foster Wallace may have been a terrible person David Foster Wallace may have written like an angel David Foster Wallace may have written like an angel because he was a terrible person he still needed help the guy committed suicide I can't help but think that being broken the way that David Foster Wallace is, was doesn't help the artist. It just maybe helps us, which is kind of crappy of us to just let happen. Yes, there are bad people who make great art. This is not an excuse for their badness nor is it an excuse for us to not help them. We have a responsibility to them too. So maybe let's focus a little bit less on the whether or not we should support the terrible people doing bad things, and instead let's think about how we can support the people who are hurting and suffering and struggling with their own problems. Maybe that's where the real moral question should be lying as far as our whole Twitter arguments and debates about morality are concerned. This is not to suggest in any way that David Foster Wallace is more deserving of help than, say, Mary Carr or any of his other victims, but it is to say that if this guy was in the public sphere and we just let this happen, that's on us. That's really on us. I didn't know that was happening when I asked that question of Mary Carr, and I feel like a shitty person for having asked it now. I feel like I could have done better, I should have done better, I should have known better. And at least part of the reason why I didn't know better was because nobody had told me. Because it had been kind of swept under the rug. Because our instinct in these situations is to make these private problems purely private. And because the honesty of someone like David Foster Wallace only goes as far as the honesty they're willing to show us. Which is itself a kind of dishonesty. Let's fix that. Let's fix the people who need that help. So, with that in mind, next week we're talking about C.S. Lewis. I want to read the experiment and criticism. I want to talk about it top to bottom. Um, as usual, this comes with a couple of supplementary readings. Although for C.S. Lewis, I'm actually on much safer ground than I am here with Maritain, Moriac, and Andre Gide. Um, specifically, what Lewis is primarily concerned with is the way that we as audiences read works. He is interested in criticizing literature and criticizing art, not according to the sort of inherent merits of that particular artwork or because of the greatness of the artist that produced it, but instead judging it based on the way it is read and the way that we as readers approach it. So with that in mind, one of the major sort of questions and distinctions that he's kind of running into here is how do you know when a person is reading a work in a literary way, when they're appreciating what it has to offer and getting wealth out of it in a way that other readers don't necessarily get? So with that in mind, it's finally time to turn our attention to uh, that big popular versus elite 
axis and to talk about commercialism and all that fun stuff, um, but also to sort of recognize those great artists who managed to sort of straddle that particular line. Lewis was yet to see the age where the sort of fusion of popularity with great art like actually became a thing since, you know, a lot of that is kind of represented by contemporary film world if I'm not like giving him too much credit there. Um, but he is sort of recognizing the couple of people who have in fact tried to do this at this point in history. So we have fun supplementary readings for next week. Um, if you get the chance, I'd highly recommend that you read Rich Robert Louis Stevenson's Treasure Island. We will be using it as a sort of perfect example of like what good literature that is also action-packed and exciting and popular tends to look like. Um, as well as, if you can track it down, it is on Project Gutenberg, H. Ritter Haggard's King Solomon's Minds, which is a considerably more complicated work and will definitely help to inform our discussion of mythology especially. Uh, but I would also just recommend that you read C.S. Lewis, because he's obviously very conscious of this distinction, and it does show up in his work. So I'd highly recommend, if you haven't read it already, it's time to read The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, because it's kind of the perfect example of... Lewis smuggling in philosophical truth and wisdom and literary merit under the guise of something that is purely for fun and purely popular and, and easy to discuss. Um, and also, while you're at it, just because I know I'm going to probably end up bringing it up, um, when I think about this sort of fusion of commercial and like artistic merits, there are obviously a lot of movies released over the last like 50 years that clearly spring up. Um, so I imagine that I'm going to be bringing up Star Wars at some point. I imagine almost certainly that I will bring up either the Lego movie or Spider-Man Into the Spider-Verse at some point. So maybe familiarize yourself with them. Like Phil Lord and Chris Miller are like the perfect example in my mind of the person who is, you know, able to turn something that is otherwise, you know, just purely popular and turn it into a complex meditation on deep psychological themes or, you know, a meditation on the nature of the commercial quality of the product itself. They're wonderful. I love them to death. I'm so excited for the new Spider-Man. Um, anyway, that's what I would recommend. Uh, read all that and or watch some of those movies. We will definitely talk about C.S. Lewis and his experiment and criticism, and we will start talking about or churn our attention on the subject of art from the artist to the audience. What is our job? How do we relate? What is our moral obligation? What happens when we get the information wrong? I look forward to talking about it with you next week. Hey, thanks for listening, and I hope you enjoyed that last discussion. Uh, I should stress, this is hardly the end of the Professor Kozlowski online presence. If you want to read some of my essays or look into some of the other work that I'm doing in and around the Internet or perhaps take one of my classes more formally, uh, please check me out at professorkozlowski.wordpress.com. That's very much the nexus point for all the stuff that I am doing online, and I usually keep it pretty well updated. Um, I should also stress we've got a lot of ambitious projects coming forward this year. 
Um, but a lot of those projects are kind of piecemeal and, and stalled as long as I'm not making a whole lot of money on this adventure. Um, so the two ways that you can definitely help to make Professor Kozlowski Lectures a success are like, share, and subscribe. Get the word out. Let people know that I'm talking about something that you're interested in or that there's something interesting going on with the work that I'm doing. And if you can, absolutely, please consider contributing to to my Patreon at patreon.com slash Professor Kozlowski. Um, a little bit of money goes a long way there, and it helps you to vote on the new topics that we're going to come up with, or even uh, suggest new topics, especially for one-off summer lectures. So I hope to hear from you soon. I hope that you, you know, get that word out, and I'll be back soon with a new lecture.